1: I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire.
2: Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. From BBC Radio
1: 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
2: is going on a road trip.
1: I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA.
2: He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... (laughs)
1: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
0: Hey, history enthusiasts. You get not one, but two events in history today. On with the show. Hi again. Welcome to This Day in History class, where history waits for no one. The day was April 30, 1963. The Bristol Omnibus Company, based in Bristol, England, had been denying Black and Asian people jobs as bus crew. So on this day, West Indians in the city began boycotting the company and refusing to ride buses. After the British Nationality Act was passed in 1948, the number of people who immigrated from the Caribbean to the UK increased significantly. Some of those people had served in the British military during World War II, and some helped with post-war rebuilding efforts. By 1960, there were around 3,000 West Indian people in Bristol, a small percentage of the city's population. But unemployment rates were high within the West Indian community. People who immigrated from the West Indies and from Asia faced housing and employment discrimination. Gangs of white men known as Teddy Boys physically attacked people of color. Some boarding houses posted signs that read, No Irish, No Blacks, No Dogs. By 1963, there were around 7,000 West Indian people in Bristol. Increasing along with the West Indian population was racial tension. But at this point, there were no laws protecting people from racial discrimination in the workplace. In other English cities like London and Manchester, Black people worked on buses as drivers and conductors. But in Bristol, the British government-owned Bristol Omnibus Company only hired Black folks as maintenance workers. Even though there was a shortage of drivers, Black people were turned away when they sought jobs as bus crew. The passenger group of the Transport and General Workers Union had even passed a resolution in 1955 that said Black workers should not be employed on the buses as drivers or conductors. Asian and Black people were applying for bus crew jobs, but they were never getting the jobs. So the Bristol Evening Post and the Western Daily Press ran stories on the discrimination saying that the Bristol Omnibus Company was purposefully refusing to give non-white workers driving and conducting jobs. Wages were low and hours were long in bus crew positions, and the people who did work them relied on overtime to make up for their poor pay. But there was still a lot of turnover for bus crew. The company's general manager, Ian Patey, said that the color bar was only in place for economic reasons and the union said that it was the company's decision as to whether it wanted to enforce the color bar. By the late 1950s, the West Indian Association was already looking into the issue of workplace race discrimination. In 1962, Jamaicans Henry Owens, Roy Hackett, Audley Evans, and Prince Brown split from the association and formed the West Indian Development Council. Paul Stevenson became the council's spokesperson. Stevenson was a university-educated Royal Air Force veteran who moved to Bristol in 1962 and was the city's first Black social worker. As a test case, Stevenson arranged a bus company interview for warehouseman and Boys Brigade Officer Guy Bailey, who was Black. When the company found out he was Black, Bailey's interview was canceled. Drawing inspiration from the American Civil Rights Movement, the council decided to stage a bus boycott. They announced the boycott at a press conference on April 29, 1963. The next day, many West Indians in Bristol refused to ride buses. The protests were nonviolent. Protesters began picketing bus depots and places along bus routes, and they set up blockades that kept buses from going into the city center. Many West Indians in Bristol supported the boycott, but did not participate because they feared losing their jobs or being attacked or because they needed to use public transportation. Patey, responding to the boycott, claimed that if more people of color worked as bus crew, fewer white people would be employed in those positions. He said that in London, where people of color are employed, white men would not want to work under a foreman of color, and quote, colored men have become arrogant and rude after they have been employed for some months. The protests garnered support from the press, students at Bristol University, and many notable people, including Bristol Southeast Member of Parliament Tony Benn, Labor Opposition Leader Harry Wilson, local Labor Party alderman Henry Hennessy, as well as former cricketer and High Commissioner for Trinidad and Tobago, Leary Constantine. The local branch of the Transport and General Workers Union refused to meet with the delegation from the West Indian Development Council, leading to weeks of back and forth between boycott supporters and opposers. On May 6th, Stevenson organized a march to St. Mary Redcliffe Church, but the demonstration did not attract a lot of people. And over the next several months, the Transport Holding Company, which was Omnibus's parent company, held negotiations with the union. Finally, on August 27th, a meeting of 500 bus workers decided to end the color bar. Four months after the boycott began, on August 28th, Pady said, There will now be complete integration without regard to race, color, or creed. The only criterion will be the person's suitability for the job. In mid-September, Rockbeer Singh, an Indian-born Sikh, became the first non-white bus conductor employed in Bristol. Two Jamaican and two Pakistani men were employed as bus crew soon after that. In 1965 and 1968, Parliament passed the Race Relations Acts, which made racial discrimination in public places, housing, and employment illegal. Some people believe that the Bristol bus boycott influenced the Acts. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And here's another note. Anti-immigrant sentiments were popular in the 1960s in the UK, And if you want to hear a little bit more about that and the Nationality Act, you can listen to our April 20th episode on conservative MP Enoch Powell's 1968 Rivers of Blood speech. If you're so inclined, you can follow us at Podcasts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.
1: Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a Gagillionaire. Available wherever you will
2: get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash Hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: I'm Katya Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Hi, everyone. I'm Eves and welcome to this day in history class, a podcast that is in a long term relationship with history. I am very grateful that I have this podcast to help me remember what day it is because in the times of quarantine, what date it is can get very confusing. Um, So that is one fortunate side effect of hosting this show. Having said that, I hope that this is helping you in this way as well or in any other way. So on with the show. The day was April 30, 1961. The Soviet Union commissioned the K-19, a ballistic missile-equipped nuclear submarine. The Cold War and the arms race between the U.S. and Soviet Union were at a height. The United States launched the first nuclear-powered submarine in the world, the USS Nautilus, in 1954. It first ran under nuclear power in 1955. Unlike diesel-electric submarines, Nautilus could stay submerged for long periods because its atomic engine needed no air. In 1958, Nautilus became the first submarine to cross the North Pole under the Arctic Polar Ice Pack. By the beginning of 1961, there were several nuclear-powered submarines in service. The Soviet Union was competing to keep up with the U.S. in nuclear submarine development. K-19 was the first of two Project 658-class submarines built by the Soviet Union in 1959. NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, classified it as the Hotel-class. The class was built in response to the United States' Skate-class nuclear submarines. The Hotel-class nuclear submarines were equipped with R-13 ballistic missiles. Construction began on the K-19 in 1958. Its production and testing were rushed. In fact, the production of Project 658 was plagued by accidents. Two workers died in a fire, and six workers died from fumes from gluing rubber lining to a water cistern. And another worker died when he fell between two compartments inside the submarine. K-19 was launched in April of 1959. When the ceremonial bottle of champagne was chosen to break against the submarine during launch, the bottle did not break, but instead bounced off the hull. And in early 1960, the submarine's nuclear reactor was improperly operated and one of the control rods was bent. K-19 was completed in November of 1960 after going through sea trials, but it was evident that the submarine's construction was shoddy. It lost the rubber coating on its hull and had to be repaired. Flooding of the reactor compartment was also recorded. Despite these and other malfunctions, the submarine was commissioned on April 30, 1961. A couple of months later, K-19 went on its first mission, but on July 4th, it malfunctioned again. When the submarine was in the North Atlantic near the south tip of Greenland, a leak in the reactor caused the coolant pumps to fail. This led to a dangerous rise in temperature in the reactor core. Because the long-range radio system was damaged, the submarine could not contact Moscow for assistance. So Captain Nikolai Vladimirovich Zateyev ordered engineers to create a makeshift coolant system using an air vent valve and water piping. A nuclear crisis was averted, but the crew was exposed to radiation. Eight crew members who fixed the leak died within a month. And since the sub's ventilation system was contaminated, 14 other crew members died over the next two years. K-19 faced more accidents the rest of its time in operation. It collided with an American submarine in 1969, and in 1972, a fire broke out on board, killing around 30 people. K-19 was finally decommissioned in 1990. Because of its reputation for being involved in deadly incidents, K-19 was nicknamed Hiroshima. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully, you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you have any nice comments you want to leave us, or if you have any suggestions for episodes, you can send them to us on social media. We're at TDIHC Podcast. You can also email us at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you tomorrow.